Well, good morning. It's really great to be back with you guys today. Like Tiffany said, uh, my name is Tyler Bacher. I am the senior high lead here at New Hope Church. And I'm just really excited to be back here today with you all to look at God's word together. Last week, we looked at the story of Elijah, his saga together. We saw through his story how God sees us, his people, in all things, from our highest highs to our messiest lows, he is there with us with compassion and care, always willing to sustain us, even when it doesn't feel like we can sustain ourselves. This week, we're looking at how our lives might be shaped when we understand that this is how God sees us, that he loves us, is compassionate towards us, and is always willing to sustain us. From, from that comfort, How does that affect how we live? We're going to look at kind of a slice of that. We can't look at the holistic picture, but a slice, a piece, like an aspect of that kind of life today. Rich Mullins, uh, the guy, if you don't know, who wrote Awesome God and like basically set the stage for modern worship music in its entirety, wrestled with this, how this life could look. Throughout the 80s, he rocketed to the top of Christian music as he single-handedly, repeatedly wrote timeless worship music. But along the way, he felt a tug of what his world expected of him. The Christian music industry of Nashville, Tennessee, couldn't help but want to prop him up as a full-blown celebrity. Not necessarily any one person, but like the machine of the, like the, the mechanisms couldn't help itself but try to make as much money as could be possible, platform as much as they possibly could. He felt the draw of money and the fame and the power that it would provide. So he left Nashville. And while he continued to make timeless classics that we would still listen to and sing today, he rejected that life that the system wanted for him. He pursued becoming a music educator and eventually taught elementary school and elementary music in the Navajo Nation. We'll finish Rich's story later on, but this part of his story tees up our passage for today, Luke 12, 13 through 34. It deals with like what we're working towards in our lives. What's our purpose? What are our goals? It critiques our default answer, or at least what our default answer often is, but then tell us, tells us why we can consider something that is better, and ultimately calls us to something that's greater. It's simultaneously convicting and comforting depending upon the season of life we find ourselves in. It might knock us up aside the head, it might provide some peace, or for me this week when I was working through it again, a little bit of both. So let's get into it. Again, our passage today is Luke 12, 13 through 34. We're going to start with just verses 13 and 14. To set the stage, Jesus is teaching a crowd of people that's gathering rapidly. There are, you know, a thousand or more people all starting to trample each other to get near him. When suddenly there's a guy who comes up to him in verse 13. Sudden, or someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. So let's back up and set the stage a little bit more. Jesus came down pretty hard on this guy. And it may not be readily obvious for us in the modern day to know why that is. Before we do that, why would this guy ask Jesus this question in the first place? It seems a little bit out of nowhere considering the teaching that had come before. Well, since Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, 
He could speak authoritatively on these kind of matters. Rabbis, the teachers of the day, often functioned as judges, interpreting for the people what the Torah, the law, meant for them and their lives. And once a rabbi made a pronouncement, that was it. It was sealed. It was done. And everyone involved was bound to what the rabbi had said. So, does this man have a case against his brother? According to the law, absolutely. When dealing with an inheritance, according to the law, the oldest sons were entitled uh, to a double share than the other sons would be, but the other sons were still entitled to a lesser share. It's likely that this man was a younger brother trying to wrestle away his share from an older brother. All this to say, this is a done deal. It's a slam dunk, open and shut case. Jesus just has to agree, the man can go on his way, live his life. So imagine the man's surprise when Jesus not only shrugs him off, but calls him out in front of this group of people for being covetous and greedy. Imagine if you were involved in a civil suit uh, with the law, with all of the evidence on your side, and the judge just looks at you and says, look, I get it, but aren't you being a little greedy? And throws the case out. That sounds unfair. So what's Jesus doing? While it's lawful for the younger brother to make a demand on his inheritance, that doesn't make it good. An inheritance was generally tied up in the day distinctly with the people's land. It was generally seen as good to keep that land together so it wasn't continually split down the generations till everyone had a few square feet to plant like a sunflower. This younger brother is effectively putting his desire for immediate gain of wealth before the needs and relationships of his family. Instead of bringing harmony to his family, he's literally tearing it apart for his own gain. Therefore, instead of ruling in the man's favor, Jesus condemns the man's greed. Jesus is saying that this man is choosing the prospect of wealth over what will actually bring him life. Now, it's not Jesus, just Jesus who taught on greed in the day. It was seen as a vice in the Jewish and Greco-Roman world. But Jesus takes his opportunity now to teach further on the subject which we'll see picking up in verse 16. He turns from this man to the crowd, including his disciples, imagine including us, in verse 16, and tells them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man was producing plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up the treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In our modern perspective, again, there's a little bit of a disconnect. We may not initially see what was wrong with the rich man and his plans. He had an overabundance of yield, which if he was going to sell at the time, would saturate the market and bring in less money. So he decides to find a way to hold on to the harvest and sell it at the right time to make maximum gains. Sounds like a good businessman, making the line go up. But here's the catch. He's already rich. If he had enough land to even think about this idea, he's in kind of the 1% of his surroundings. There's no way he could possibly have needed more. While on the other hand, his actions would have driven up the prices of goods for the poor that needed them to survive. Let alone the good that it would have done if he had just given the excess to them in the first place. 
He's chosen the promise of wealth at the expense of what would actually give life. Augustine summarizes it as best as I've seen when he said, if I could find it. (laughs) Sorry. It's a really good quote, so we can't, okay, there we go. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer than the storerooms of his barns. But the rich man isn't done yet. He goes a step further. In verse 19, the rich man reveals that he is not only greedy, but that he has found hope in what he possesses. His plans have worked out. He'll never want for anything again and then some. His possessions have become his security and his God. But this is a misplaced trust, as we see in verse 20. There's a lot of things wrapped up into this pronouncement that God gives in verse 20, though. When he says, fool, this night, is required, or this, soul, your, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? The rich man has placed trust in himself and his riches to guarantee his joy and sustainability. And, and it can, that he can control his circumstances when only God can offer those things. And only God controls circumstances. So the man is called a fool. Which gives the connotation not only that he's somehow not smart, but that he's rejected right relationship with God and his ways. That there's now a fracture between God and this person in a way that needs to be mended. We see the utter pointlessness, too, of the gains that he's hoarded for himself. He's dead. What good will any of this do for him now? What good will his wealth be? And finally comes the conclusion that we should take note of as Jesus really turns to his disciples and us. And says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The paradigm here seems clear. We are fools to think that the pursuit of greed and exorbitant wealth won't lead to a misplaced trust in self and dramatically harm our relationship with God. And in the end, this false sense of security in ourselves and our net worth won't do us a single bit of good. That'd be a downer place to end, right? That'd be, that'd be really, really awful to stop here because this passage is straight up existential crisis inducing. It undermines everything we seem to have security in by reminding us that death is gonna come probably unexpectedly and that we really don't have a lot of control over a variety of different circumstances in our lives. But we don't need to think back very far in our own lives to remember that this is the case. Our recent past and current circumstances lay bare our loss of control over things we thought secure. Our health, our jobs, our finances, our trusted institutions, all shown to be one pandemic away from faltering. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us in a pit of despair. He goes on to encourage us in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and body is more than clothing. Let me stop there for just one second before we go on, because I find that to be an extremely weird therefore. Because what Jesus just said, like I said, should be anxiety-inducing. It should cause us to panic, to say, you don't have control. That's not like, so don't be anxious. But Jesus reverses this. He's saying, since we don't have control over those things and since God cares for us, we aren't the one to worry about those things. He is. Easier said than done, right? Nice to say that, harder to do. But remember back to last week, how out of control Elijah's circumstances were. But God was with him. 
through drought, through confrontation, through threats on his life and his own crushed spirit, God sustained him. Spiritually, sure, but also tangibly, physically, met his needs. Back in our passage today, Jesus gives us some more clever pictures of what it looks like to be cared for by God in verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you can, by being anxious, add one single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you eat or what you will drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. So as Jesus said, let's take a moment to consider the ravens. In the ancient world, they were basically known as just the dumbest birds because they couldn't even find their nest back. They could hardly keep themselves going as it was. Further, they were considered unclean by the law, and so you couldn't eat them. You couldn't even touch them. So if God takes care of these dumb, unclean birds, how much more will he take care of you? Going on to his next example, it's an amazing knock on human accomplishment to compare the greatness of Solomon to a flower. To the Jewish people of the day, Solomon represented the pinnacle of their achievement, wealth, security, and autonomy. He was the golden years, the best they had done, and everything else from there had been down the tubes. Yet, one of God's simplest creations is more magnificently clothed than Solomon. If God looks after the lilies and the grassy fields like that, how much more will he take care of you? We are not remotely in control of our lives. We can't add a single step, a single breath to them. They're all sustained by God's grace. And that's why he's saying we can let go of the anxiety of being provided for. We can't do it anyway, but we know someone who can. Jesus further states that it's the nations who worry about this, those outside of a relationship with God, not his children who he provides for. So while we don't have control over the circumstances of our lives, we can trust that God is a good father who will provide for us. He knows our needs and will meet them. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fear. Not that it's necessarily like wrong to have fear or that God is mad about our anxieties. Far be it from that. God, you saw last week, God's compassion towards us, even when we're feeling like our elephants are raging. But he's providing an opportunity for us to be free with him. It's a gift that he's giving us to be free of this anxiety, not a demand. I hope through this week and, and through last week and this part of this week, we can begin to imagine together a scene in which Jesus is either, you know, wrapping his arms around you in a hug or, if you prefer, grabbing you firmly by the shoulders, whatever makes you more feel, you know, secure. And him saying to you, I've got you. No, really, I've got you. Even in the face of hardship, I will provide. Even in the face of death itself, I will bring you to new life. I've got you. In these last few verses today, Jesus adds, now follow me. I've got something for us to do here. In verse 31, he finishes by saying, instead, seek his kingdom 
and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The reason we're told not to worry is for our own personal good, but also so that we are free to seek the holistic kingdom of God. Not only proclaiming who God is, but working with him to bring the world better in line with what he would find as good. This is our primary goal as the, in our lives as Jesus followers. Seeking that kingdom of God, not little kingdoms for ourselves. Which brings us and gives us the strength to wrestle with verse 33. Where he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Going back to Rich Mullins, he had a thought on verses like this that I wanted to share before we got to it. He said to a bunch of college students at one point, you guys are all into that born again thing, which is great. We need to be born again because Jesus said that to a guy. But what if I tell you to sell everything and give it to the poor because Jesus said that to a guy once too? But I guess that's why God invited, invented highlighters so we can highlight the parts that we like and ignore the parts that we don't. I read that this week as I was preparing for this and it knocked me back. It was as though he was like winking through the page, like you all really like that anxiety part. Don't worry, you're free, highlight that. But do your best to ignore that last paragraph. Box it in as much as you can, caveat it, try to put it away, because it might change your life. But Rich took the whole passage to heart. If there was anyone who had the right to needle his audience a little bit like he did there, it was Rich. He could have lived that life of celebrity luxury like we talked about, but he rejected that. Instead, he often stayed with folks as a place of living, like when he was a roommate with a Wheaton College prof and his family. It's a funny story. There's this you know, family of five or something like that, and he's like, can I just have a spare room? And they're like, we don't really have one, but okay. His clothes were often plain and worn, yet he would give his shirt off his back if he mentioned it. But kind of most amazingly, he took all of the money that he brought in from his albums and touring and whatever it was and gave it to a group of folks who would give him the, the average laborer's salary for the United States that year and then immediately donate the rest to charity. That being said, Rich Mullins might have earned the right to lay into this. I haven't. Know that we get it, as we get into the rest of this passage, the rest of it is absolutely convicting to me. If I'm knocking anyone here, I'm knocking myself first. But let's make sure to highlight all of this passage together and not just the parts we like. So what's actually being said here at the end of the passage today in verse 33 and beyond? Overarchingly, I think what Jesus has been pointing to throughout this entire passage is that absolutely everything is God's. Our lives, our resources, everything. So be ready to put everything on the table to accomplish his holistic purposes in the world. That doesn't necessarily mean that his people have to take on like a monastic vow of poverty or something. In fact, as much as it might be easier, I don't think this passage gives us an abundantly clear line of like, well, you have to give this much or this is too much or whatever. Instead, we're invited to be in a relationship with Jesus. One in which as we walk with him moment to moment, he can point out needs to us and we can feel free enough with him, with our resources, to address those needs. 
Especially, as verse 33 points out, when we can sacrifice to help those who are in financial need. This is a significant way that that holistic kingdom of God goes forth. But it is a paradigm shift. We live in America. We've grown up in America. And I bet many of us have grown up and and been instilled in us this dominant mode of, of save yourself, protect yourself, and treat yourself a little along the way. That's the dream, self-sufficiency. But what does it mean to reject that dream and instead see our neighbor's needs before our own? What does it mean for us to stop planning so much for the future and ensure that our neighbors in the present are cared for? I doubt that'd be easy. In fact, I bet if we're doing it right, there will come times in our lives that we'll feel anxious for our own needs. We'll feel that feeling bubble up inside ourselves. Which is why Jesus said everything that he said before. Effectively, don't worry, I've got you. Think of the sparrows, think of the grass. I got you. Now go be my people. Because in doing so, we're rewarded with what is truly life-giving. Being with God and working towards his kingdom. We won't get to heaven and find a a treasure set aside for us in a vault somewhere, but we will know what God means when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I believe Rich Mullins heard those words and knew what they meant, too. He died in a car crash, in 1997 at the age of 41. That day his life was demanded of him. There was no more time left. Nothing more that money could have done or that he could have done with it. No more barns to build, as the passage said today. But he had taken Jesus' words to heart. He had heart. He had made the most of the time that he had been given, investing in that holistic kingdom of God throughout his life. He rejected what was expected of him and instead cared for the poor, the needy, the oppressed. He enjoyed the relationship with God that comes from working with him to accomplish his purposes. He heard, well done, good and faithful servant. May we strive to hear that too. Let us seek out the kingdom of God and pour our resources towards it as best we can so that our heart may be unimpeded in following Jesus and having that kind of relationship with him. May we also truly find rest and peace in the promise that God will be with us, that he has you. May we also, though, not be so focused on pursuing our own wealth, status, consumption, or needs, but rather seek with God ways he would have us contribute and work with him towards his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that In the face of an unpredictable life, in the face of an unpredictable world, you are with us. That you love us. That you're willing to have compassion and care for us, no matter what our circumstance might be. Even as we're tempted to build little kingdoms for ourselves, silos for our things, that you would rather us be with you. That we could find freedom from the anxiety that would tether us to our own selfish ambitions but rather send us out as your people. God, empower us, embolden us, help us to consider what that might look like. We thank you that you are with us in all these things. In your name, amen.